0: Let's get started. Sing, hold it in. sing it now. Sing. Sweet potatoes, sweet potatoes, soon as we all cook sweet potatoes, eat them right straight up. Hello, welcome to our show, Bench Talk, The Week in Science. I'm Dave Robinson, your co-host today, and I'm sure a lot of you were preoccupied last Friday, May 3rd, with it being Oaks Day and Kentucky Derby Eve and everything. But did you know that on that very same day, May 3rd, Exactly 100 years ago, the legendary folk singer and activist Pete Seeger was born. Pete Seeger was born on May 3rd, 1919. Now, Pete passed away five years ago, but he is still missed for his songwriting, his voice, and his love and passion for almost every progressive cause in the country for decades. In the words of President Barack Obama, Pete Seeger, quote, believed in the power of community, to stand up for what's right, speak out against what's wrong, and move this country closer to the America he knew we could be. Over the years, Pete used his voice and his hammer to strike blows for workers' rights and civil rights, world peace and environmental conservation. And he always invited us to sing along. For reminding us where we come from and showing us where we need to go, we will always be grateful to Pete Seeger. Unquote. As tribute to Pete Seeger's 100th birthday, we are playing his performance of an old Creole folk song called Soon As We Cook Sweet Potatoes. This song was released in 1960 in one of his 97 full-length albums that he made in his life. Thank you, Pete. You are still with us. suppers at Mommy Hollers Get along to bed I actually learned several important life lessons from Pete Seeger, and I'll discuss some of them later in the show. But one of them, I can tell you right now, it was that each one of us can travel a different path in our life. Even though Pete was totally and absolutely in love with music, he encouraged the rest of us to pursue our own passions, as long as it serves goodness and justice. And for me, that meant it was perfectly cool for me to pursue a career in science. Pete Seeger was certainly critical of the scientists who developed things like fracking, trans fats, and artificial food coloring, military weaponry, the atomic bomb. I'm with him on that. But Seeger also had a perspective about science that I don't agree with. He was critical of the pursuit of pure scientific knowledge just for its own sake. He didn't really believe in scientific research just for the sake of attaining general knowledge. Well, I don't agree with that attitude, but I think his point was that scientists need to be more cognizant of how all that knowledge and know-how they generate actually gets used. I know this has affected me because in my own scientific career, I've always tried to select research topics that could be useful to humankind in one way or another, topics that at least would not blatantly hurt people. Pete Seeger often quoted Alfred North Whitehead, who's a mathematician philosopher who died in 1947. Alfred North Whitehead could really be thought of as the primary founder of what's called process philosophy. Process philosophy is kind of a bridge between religion, philosophy, and science. Anyway, there's a quote by Alfred North Whitehead that Pete Seeger was fond of reciting. Here it is. In the conditions of modern life, The rule is absolute. The race, which does not value trained intelligence, is doomed. Not all of your heroism, not all of your social charm, not all of your wit, not all of your victories on land or at sea can move back the finger of fate. Today we maintain ourselves. Tomorrow, science will have moved forward yet one more step and there will be no appeal from the judgment which will then be pronounced on the uneducated, unquote. That's a quote by Alfred North Whitehead that, yeah, believe it or not, Pete Seeger would repeat banjo in hand on the stage. Well, with that, I'd like to mention another important historic milestone this month, the death of Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci died on May 2, 1519, 500 years ago. Leonardo da Vinci was both a great scientist and an exquisite artist. He's truly the epitome of the Renaissance Man. Leonardo lived for 67 years and is world-renowned for his many talents. He painted the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper and also the drawing known as the Vitruvian Man. Surely you've seen the Vitruvian Man drawing. It's an ink drawing of a nude man who basically looks like he's doing a jumping jack, I guess, And Leonardo drew a circle around the man's body, outlining where the fingertips and feet would be. It forms a circle, but then there's also a square in there, and there's some mathematics involved. It's believed that the face of the Vitruvian man is actually Leonardo da Vinci. It's a self-portrait. So if you want to know what he looked like, check that out. I'll try to post a copy of it on our Facebook page da Vinci kept extensive notes and drawings. There's some 13,000 pages of handwritten notes about whatever happened to be on his mind at the time. Some of his notes are just grocery lists and reminders, but there's also exquisite drawings of plants, animal dissections, rock formations, drapery, architecture, faces, the human body, and in these journals are also his scientific observations and discoveries. He designed a flying machine based on his observations of how birds fly. He conceived of armored fighting machines, double-hulled ships, solar power, musical instruments, hydraulic pumps, and adding machines. It's said that Leonardo was not an inherent genius like Albert Einstein or Isaac Newton or Mozart, but he had an extremely well-developed sense of wonderment about the world. He was curious about how everything worked, and he was a master of observation. He questioned everything around him, and he taught himself, not just by reading about it, but by doing. If he didn't know how something worked, he did experiments to learn that. He was ever curious about the world. Da Vinci is quoted as saying, quote, I have been impressed with the urgency of doing. Knowing is not enough, we must apply. Being willing is not enough, we must do, unquote. It's those two characteristics that made da Vinci the revered thinker he is today, curiosity and the power of observation. So he made numerous discoveries in the field of optics, hydrology, geology, anatomy, engineering, And he did it with a joy for learning and exploration. Da Vinci was not particularly good at mathematics or Latin, and so he practiced them both and taught himself to excel at math and Latin. His science and his art really overlapped one another. The reason he studied human anatomy was to be able to paint and draw better representations of the human form. He studied chemistry to develop better paints. He studied physics and optics to learn how light reflects off objects for his art. Whereas botanists struggle with art in order to more accurately depict the plant species they are describing, Leonardo struggled with the botany so that his paintings would be more realistic. But in doing so, he became somewhat of a botanist himself. So there's a lot to admire in Leonardo da Vinci. Last year, Walter Isaacson, a professor of history at Tulane University, wrote an article in the Saturday Evening Post about da Vinci. He listed 20 lessons from Leonardo that we could all adopt in order to become more like him. Here's da Vinci's 20 lessons. Number one, be curious. Number two, seek knowledge for its own sake. Number three, retain a childlike sense of wonder. Number four, observe things. Number five, start with the details. Worry about the big picture later. Number six, go down rabbit holes. Don't be afraid of immersing yourself with details. Get obsessed with things. Number seven, see things that are unseen. In other words, develop a good imagination. Number eight, allow yourself to get distracted I'm amazed when I look at the Journal of Leonardo da Vinci. On the same page, there'll be botanical drawings, and then there'll be some wooden contraption that he's conceiving together on the same page. It's because he allowed himself to get distracted. Number nine, respect facts. Be willing to change your mind if you're faced with observations that contradict your initial idea. Number ten, procrastinate. Da Vinci would spend a lot of time just thinking about his next paint strokes before he actually committed to it. Number eleven, let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Don't be satisfied with just good enough. Wait for perfection. Apparently, the Mona Lisa was never actually finished. It was still with Da Vinci when he died at the age of 67. Da Vinci was never satisfied with this painting, the Mona Lisa, that's now generally thought to be as the world's most famous painting. Number 12. Think visually. Don't just memorize, visualize. Number 13. Avoid silos. Da Vinci's mind seamlessly flowed between art, science, engineering, and the humanities. Number 14. Let your reach exceed your grasp. Use your imagination. Think large. Number 15. Indulge fantasy. He invented flying machines that never flew, but he imagined that they could. 16. Create for yourself, not just for your rich patrons. Leonardo focused his whole life on this one painting, Mona Lisa, who was a silk merchant's wife. But at the same time, there was another woman, a very wealthy woman, who begged da Vinci to paint a portrait of her, but he never got around to it. 17. Collaborate. Work with others. That's what da Vinci did. Eighteen, make lists. You'll see them in his journal. Nineteen, take notes on paper. Da Vinci's notes are still with us, but if he had been using social media and Twitter and emails, what would we have now? So leave a legacy behind. And finally, the twentieth thing that we can do to be more like Leonardo da Vinci? Be open to mystery. After all, it's the mysterious things in life that make it all worthwhile. There was a provocative essay that came out in June of 2018 that I thought you might be interested in. This article is published in the journal Bioscience and was written by three leaders in the Wildlife Conservation Society. I'll post this article on our Facebook page if you want to read the whole thing yourself. In Facebook, just search for Bench Talk, The Week in Science. Anyway, this article discusses some of the major global trends that have been going on for some time now. And the authors predict these trends are going to continue. And these trends appear to be happening throughout the world, perhaps with the exception, they say, of sub-Saharan Africa. The first trend they discuss has to do with population growth. We've currently got 7.7 billion people on Earth, and I'm sure you know global human population growth is still continuing. The number of people on Earth has almost always been on the rise, but demographers generally agree that eventually the number of people on Earth is going to plateau. Maybe it will peak at 8 billion people from our current 7.7 billion, but more likely it's going to plateau somewhere between 10 to 12 billion people. Now, although the number of people on Earth is on the rise, the rate of population growth has actually been falling since the 1960s. This phenomenon is called the demographic transition and basically goes like this. As societies get wealthier and get better at treating diseases and are better aware of how to prevent disease, like reducing our exposure to disease-causing germs, death rates decline. That shows up in a decline of childhood mortality. In the long run, when childhood mortality rates decline, people tend to have fewer children. In the beginning of the medical revolution, fertility rates go up, but eventually family sizes start to shrink. Then there's urbanization, where people live in cities versus agricultural societies. People who live in agricultural societies depend a great deal more on the daily labor of children whereas urban societies don't. So the average family size in the United States, when I was born 1955, it was 3.5 children born to each woman during her life. Now our fertility rate is less than two children per woman. So it's dropped from 3.5 kids to less than two kids in only 60 years. Now, of course, there's a lot of factors responsible for this drop in fertility. Wealth, education, medical care, women's rights, But these authors argue that urbanization has a lot to do with that, too. Another important factor behind the demographic transition is wealth. The more wealth families have, in fact, the wealthier a country is, the smaller the average family size. That's what's occurred in the past, and experts agree that that trend is going to continue. Well, our world is getting wealthier. There's a lot of focus these days about the growing disparity in wealth between the very richest people and the rest of us. And as you know, the trend over the past few decades has been an accumulation of wealth in the hands of the top few percent. But what you might not realize is that while the very richest people are making even more, so are the very poorest. In 1981, more than half of the people living in the developing world lived in poverty. By 2010, that percentage was only 21%. So it's gone from more than half to 21% in about 30 years. So there are now hundreds of millions of people living in the lower and middle income countries who are not living in extreme poverty anymore like their parents and grandparents did. One of the most important reasons for this worldwide decline in extreme poverty in the last 40 years is the migration of people to cities people are leaving rural areas throughout the world and migrating to urban areas. Now, this migration to cities is partly for economic opportunity. It's for the social benefits of living in cities. But part of that migration is due to things like climate change, bad land use policies, political repression, etc. As you know, many of these people who migrate to larger cities initially end up living in slums, but they still continue to do it. We've now got 4 billion people living in cities. That's more than half of the world's population. It's the question of urbanization that I found most interesting about this article. Environmentalists might think of urbanization as being a bad thing. People leaving the bucolic countryside and congregating in towns and cities, leading to overcrowding, more pollution, overconsumption of resources. But these writers are arguing that people who live in cities, towns, or suburbs actually have a lower negative effect on the environment on a per capita basis than those who live in the countryside. The average New York City resident, for instance, uses 74% less water, 35% less electricity, and produces 45% less garbage than the average American does. It's more energy efficient to heat and cool apartment buildings and condominiums, for instance, because they share common walls and floors and ceilings and roofs. There's more mass transportation available instead of individuals driving their separate cars around. There's relatively fewer lawns to be watered, fertilized, sprayed, and mowed in an urban area. People are sharing social and physical amenities more in cities, For instance, the Postal Service can deliver the mail to people much more efficiently when they're all living closer together. People aren't traveling so far to go shopping or visit friends or attend cultural activities. Folks are literally sharing the roads. They're sharing the bridges and parks more, which means that you need relatively fewer of them. Since you have more people living per square mile, they literally are consuming less space. So our per capita environmental footprint is smaller when we live in more densely populated areas. Average incomes appear to be higher for people in cities. And that gives rise to more disposable income that could be spent on things like education or leisure. So this basically means that people have more options in the city. And these authors are saying that if the decision-making power of city dwellers is, quote, informed by education, regulation economic policy, and social norms, you might see a decoupling of consumption and natural resource extraction from economic growth, unquote. I think what they're saying here is that as people's income and education go up, and those two things are probably correlated, they're going to be more aware of environmental problems and they're more likely going to recognize the impact that they're having on the environment. They also might become more politically astute if they have higher income and are more educated. Another advantage to urban places is that they can also serve as hubs for new ideas, innovations, technological development. I guess it's because you have a diverse group of people living and working relatively close to one another that interaction drives economic, cultural, and social innovations. Cities have traditionally been the primary centers for the arts and sciences historically. Things like the development of writing, religion, electric engines, the automobile, all came from urban areas. Cities are also the places where social and political movements develop. The Wildlife Conservation Society, which these authors work at, as well as the Audubon Society, the Nature Conservancy, the Sierra Club, Greenpeace... These organizations were all founded in cities. These authors are arguing that since people are more interdependent on each other in cities versus the countryside, there's more opportunity to change the attitudes of a large group of people about their consumption, about conserving resources, and about the environment. My interpretation of this article, and it's really just my interpretation, is that the authors are saying that the key to protecting the environment in the long run is urbanization and economic justice. If people can get beyond a subsistence existence, and that might mean living in a town or city, if they can earn enough money that they have discretionary income, and if that's accompanied with education and social and cultural incentives, as well as environmentally oriented economic and government policy, then the negative influences that people have on the environment might be reduced at least on a per capita basis now i've got to tell you this is not how all environmental scientists look at the situation in two thousand there was a german scientist by the name of paul krutzen who coined the term anthropocene or anthropocene around the idea that the planet was moving out of the geological era called the Holocene due to human activity. He called this new era the Anthropocene. Paul Crutzen is saying that since the early 1800s, humans have been putting synthetic chemicals into the environment. We've been putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and the water. We're interfering with the natural recycling of nitrogen and phosphorus and sulfur, modifying the terrestrial water cycle, and reducing natural biodiversity. Crutzen and some other researchers wrote an article in 2011 where they produced a lot of data showing that our negative effects on the environment really went into high gear following World War II. They called that period starting in the 1950s to about 2000 as, quote, the Great Acceleration. And they found a correlation between our negative impact on the environment and population growth, economic development, and urbanization. Dr. Paul Elric, an entomologist at Stanford University, even put forth a formula back in 1972 called the IPAT equation. IPAT. I stands for our impact on the environment, and that equals P, which is population, A, which stands for affluence, and T, which stands for technology. So, I equals PAT. Our impact on the environment, I, is the product of our population, times our wealth, times our use of technology. So the authors of this June 2018 paper in Bioscience conclude that the move towards economic justice could ultimately put us on the path to environmental recovery. To quote from them, quote, We believe that a more useful discussion about the future of nature follows from defining the human conditions that will allow nature to recover, casting the present moment in light of long-term socio-ecological change. We suggest that lasting conservation success can best be realized when A. The human population stabilizes and begins to decrease, B extreme poverty is alleviated, and C, the majority of the world's people and institutions act on a shared belief that it is in their best interest to care for, rather than destroy, the natural basis of life on earth. They finish their article saying, quote, If the demographic and economic phenomena that we discuss here do come to pass, it means that conservation faces another 30 to 50 years of extreme difficulty when more losses can be expected. However, if we can sustain enough nature through the bottleneck, despite climate change, growth in the population and economy, and urban expansion, then we can see the future of nature in a dramatically more positive light, unquote. They continue on, quote, Much as the 18th century enlightenment created the conditions for our world, we need a 21st century renaissance of wisdom, founded on the belief that our role as human beings is to restore, steward, and celebrate the earth's unique and eminent nature." Well, I don't have the answer to this seeming contradiction myself. Everyone seems to be saying that the environmental consequences of the next 30 to 50 years is going to be dire, but what about after that? Will things just continue to get worse or will our species rise to the occasion and act as responsible stewards of the planet? You'll have to think about that yourself. But today we're celebrating Pete Seeger's birth. He was born 100 years ago And I can tell you that of all the lessons that Pete taught me as a young man back in the 1960s and 70s, one was to be optimistic. His friends and families are always speaking of Pete Seeger's unwavering hopefulness about the present and the future. I think that might be why Seeger sang so many songs that were oriented to children and young people. It was his optimism about the future. Another lesson I learned from Pete Seeger as a young man was not to accept things the way they are right now, that even one person can make a huge difference. We can change the world. Pete Seeger said, quote, the key to the future of the world is finding optimistic stories and letting them be known, unquote. Hear, hear. Sounds the rooster crow in the morning, got to wash our face. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word benchtalkradio at gmail.com Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website www.forwardradio.org This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 PM, that's Eastern Time, 11.30 AM every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you. eat, potatoes, eat them right straight up.